Well, we are getting close to that time of year when college graduation and high school graduation, even preschool graduation is coming up. Hopefully these things are going to happen this year. And we're excited about that time of year. I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to go somewhere with it. So it might sound silly at first, but just work with me on it. How do you know someone is a graduate? Like, let's say that you're one of these people that will be declared a graduate of high school, college, preschool. How do you know that you are a graduate? And you're like, well, clearly you are not a graduate of anything, or you would know the answer to this question. Now work with me on it. There's a, there's a certain criteria that a person must meet to be declared a graduate. So you've gone through a series, uh, maybe a number of years of work and uh, testing, and then at the end of all of that, work and testing and evaluation, there's someone who uh, says that, yes, you completed all of these things, here is a diploma, here's a certificate, you are a graduate, right? So there's some evidence of that. There's some some way to look back and say, yes, uh, this person has graduated. How many of you may have a sports jersey or a, a favorite hat of your favorite sports team with the, the logo on your hat? Anybody have? Oh, help me out here. How many? All right. If I saw you wearing that jersey, if I saw you wearing your favorite sports team hat, and I came up to you and I asked you, uh, and was being totally serious, I asked you, are you on this team that you have this jersey for? Like, do you play for the New Jersey Road Taxers? Is that who, are you on that team? That's not a real team, by the way. That was just an opportunity for me to make fun of New Jersey, and I took it. If you had a hat on, if you had a jersey on, I asked you, do you play for that team? You would look at me like, what is your problem? Of course I don't play for this team. Well, then, just because I have a, a jersey, just because I have a hat that says whatever, if that doesn't mean I'm on the team, what does? What qualifies, what determines if I am on that particular team? Well, there's tryouts that people go through. Uh, maybe they play that sport at a lower level and they work their way up through the system. Maybe they are recruited. Uh, but then at some point, the coach or the coaching staff puts together a roster and uh, if your name is on the team roster, you're on the team. And then you get the official team jersey. You get the official team hat. You are on the team. There's lots of examples like this. Like, how do you know you are a Marine? Someone says, I'm a Marine. Well, how do you know you're a Marine? Well, I went through boot camp. Uh, I did all of the testing. I didn't. I'm saying someone who's a Marine, right? They, they went through all of this hard work, and at the end of all of that, there was a ceremony, and there were pins, and there were patches that were presented. All of this is evidence that this person is, in fact, a Marine. How do you know for sure that you are healed from a disease? Let's say you walk into the doctor's office, and the doctor says, uh, you're healed. This disease that you had, it's gone. Well, how do you know that? Well, there's a lot of diseases that you can't see that are happening inside of a person's body. You can't tell by just looking at a person, yes, healed, not healed. You can't do that for a lot of diseases. Well, that doctor uh, can do blood tests. That doctor can do a CAT scan or an MRI. There are scientific ways 
uh, that produce evidence that this person is healed from a disease. How do you know that you're married? Well, you know that you're married because you showed up for some ceremony. There's a paper trail for that. There's a, there's a paper record of that in a courthouse somewhere. Uh, you, uh, you had all these expensive pictures taken, right? There's evidence, the rings, the whole bit. There's evidence that would lead you to conclude, I am married. All of those examples, I am leading up to this question, right? All of that stuff, if someone says, I'm a Marine, I'm on the team, I'm married, I'm this, I'm that, how do you know you are? Well, there's a way for us to point to evidence that would demonstrate that I am this. But if I were to ask you, how do you know for sure that you are a genuine, saved from sin, saved from hell, Christian? How do you know? You can claim that. I can claim that. I can say, I am a Christian. I am a believer. How do you know that you are right with God? How do you know for sure that I can't look inside of your body and see your soul and, and know that there, you didn't get a certificate from God at some point in the mail that says, yes, this person is a believer. And if you didn't get your certificate, you're not. How do you know? that you are a genuine, saved-from-hell Christian with assurance of eternal life? It's a legitimate question. I bring it up because uh, Jesus brought it up in the book of Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So there's a person, apparently, who addresses Jesus as the Lord, recognizes apparently his, his deity, recognizes that Jesus is God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone gets to go to heaven. Wait a minute, well, I, I, maybe we knew that, but this person says, Lord, Lord, this person recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus goes on, only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This one this next sentence is kind of rattling. It's a little unsettling. Many will say to me on that day. Many. Many will say to me on that day. What day? The, the day of judgment. The day that you and I stand before God. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? We did all this religious stuff in your name, Lord. Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I, I don't know you. Away from, you. away from me, you evildoers. That's strong language, evildoers. Wait a minute, this person was in, was in some type of religious activity on a regular basis and did some good things. Evildoers? unsettling to think that there was someone who thought they were on the team, someone who thought that they were saved from sin and saved from hell. They thought they would be welcomed into heaven, and they said to Jesus, look, here's the evidence that I deserve to be here, and Jesus says, I don't know you. So how do we know? How do we know if we are truly a genuine, safe-from-hell Christian? See, salvation 
from hell, salvation from our sin. That's something spiritual, right? It's not, it's not a physical thing that we can see. It's not like, you know, you see someone who is physically alive. We can tell most of the time if someone is physically alive, if they're up moving around. And if they're not moving around, there's ways that we can go over. And if they're just laying there, we can look to see if they're breathing. We can check their pulse to see if their heart is beating. We can tell if someone is physically alive, but how do you know if a soul is alive? The Bible describes a genuine, saved-from-hell Christian as being adopted into the family of God. That's what the Bible says, that when we trust Christ as our Savior, that we, uh, that we are put into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into His forever family. Well, how do you know that happened? I mean, I, I have a, uh, maybe you know someone who is adopted. I have a brother and a sister who were adopted into our family when we were younger. Well, how do we know that they were adopted into our family? How do they know that? They're not biologically connected to us, but they were chosen. How, how, do they, how do they know that? How do we know that? Well, there's a paper trail for all of that, right? There was, a, there was a day in court, and there's a record at the courthouse of these things. There is uh, the, the, the person who is adopted. They've got a different genetic code, so we could do genetic uh, testing on this person and say, no, it doesn't match up with the biologically uh, the, these parents that have raised you, it's different. Right? There's, there's testing that can be done. There's a way to track that kind of stuff. But how do you know if someone is spiritually adopted by God into his forever family as a genuine saved from hell believer? There's not a paper trail for that. Hopefully I've created enough tension in this question that you're like, yeah, let's figure this one out. I'm going to ask if you would open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. I want to welcome you back to the study of this letter, this, this handwritten personal letter from the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written to a group of believers, genuine, saved from hell believers living in the city of Thessalonica. I want to pick back up where we left off last week. And I just want to let you know, hold on, because we are really going to pick up the pace today. Week one, we looked at one verse. Last week, we looked at two verses. And today, we're going to look at one word. I'm kind of kidding. We're actually going to work our way down through verses 4 to 10. We are going to finish the chapter, but I am going to be focusing in on just one word. We're going to spend a lot of time and attention trying to understand this word in verse 4, this word chosen. Let me read verse 4 to you. Verse 4 says, we know, we know something to be true. He's addressing the believer, dear brother and sister. That's a, a reference to a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Believer, we know that God loves us, that God loves you. 
and has, here's our word, and has chosen you to be his own people. God has chosen you to be his own people. Now, there's, there's probably not a lot of controversy that popped into your mind over that part in the verse that says that God loves Jesus' followers. When, when, when I read that, you probably didn't scratch your head and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean to tell me that God loves Jesus' followers? Well, this is shocking news. Let's take a minute and process that. There's probably not going to be any arguments in the room started over that point. But this other part of the verse, there is tension there. This part of the verse where Paul says, we know that God has chosen you might have caused you to scratch your head for a moment and say, whoa, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that God picks and chooses who will be saved? Therefore, choosing who will not be saved? That doesn't sound very WWJD to me at all. Maybe it's just an outlier. Maybe that word is, is just unique to that verse, and we don't see it uh, anywhere else in the New Testament. Let's find out. If you would go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a verse that a lot of you might even have memorized. We love Romans 8, 28. As Christians, we get such great confidence from this verse. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Well, we love that verse, right? That verse gives us great confidence in the sovereignty of God. But we continue on. Because it's not the end of the thought. It's not the end of the paragraph or the chapter. The thought continues in verse 29. For God knew His people in advance. And He chose them to become like His Son, so that the Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having giving, given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Hmm. Ephesians chapter 1. Go there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's start with verse 4. Even before the world was made, before God spoke the universe into existence, before God created mankind, before any of it, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God 
For the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Before the world was even created, chosen by God... 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. This letter, it says in verse 1, is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Verse 2, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What we read in 1 Thessalonians is not an outlier. There is something to this, this divine election, this this choice that God makes, we can't ignore it, but it does certainly create attention. It creates attention for us in our understanding of free will, in our understanding of man's responsibility for sin. One of the first verses that we learn when we are young, if you grew up in a church setting, one of the first verses you learn is John 3.16, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that whoever believes in Him won't perish, won't be separated from God for all of eternity, but instead will have everlasting life. There is this tension that exists then between the sovereignty of God's choice and our understanding of free will. My theology professor in seminary, when we got to this topic, uh, used to pose the question this way. He would say, so does God choose whom He will save, or do we, by our own free will, choose to believe? And the answer He would give us is yes. That's not super helpful at all. But it is, there is this tension between these two things, between the sovereignty of God and our free will. I do not claim that I'm going to be able to unravel all of that mystery in 20 minutes. But I do want to try to unravel enough of it so that we can hopefully answer the question, how do I know if I'm truly saved? How do I know that I am chosen? How do I know that? This understanding, as we try to unravel this, uh, this, this tension, this mystery, I think we have to start with the gospel, a real clear, solid understanding of the gospel. And that starts with our understanding of our sin. We need to understand at a heart level that we are born spiritually dead. That sin is, is transferred from parent 
to child, and it can be traced all the way back to the original sin of Adam and Eve. And we're born spiritually dead. We are born separated from a holy God. There's lots of verses that talk about uh, this separation because of our sin between us and God because He is holy and He is righteous and we are not. And it's a problem, right? It's a problem that we can't fix on our own. One of the passages that I really love when it talks about uh, our problem and the solution is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you don't know that verse, uh, look it up, underline it, write it in the back, uh, note of your Bible, so you have access to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I'll read it to you. It's on the screen. It is by grace. Well, whose grace? Not my grace. Not your grace. It's by God's grace that you and I are saved through what? Through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in what He did for us on the cross. It's not of yourselves, Paul writes. It's the gift of God. God provides the gift of His grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It is a gift of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. It's a gift. Wages are something that we earn, right? You go to work, and then you get paid. Those are your wages. And Romans uh, talks very clearly about what we deserve for our sin. Those wages deserve death, spiritual death. It's God's gift of grace that we can be saved. And it finishes that passage by saying it's uh, not by our works so that no one can boast. No one can stand before God ever and claim that they deserve to be in heaven, claim that they have earned their way to heaven. It's not ever going to happen. So salvation from sin, salvation from hell, it's not generated from our own efforts. It's also... Not just from believing the facts, believing that God exists, accepting the historical record of Jesus and His birth, and accepting the historical record of His death and resurrection. James 2.19 points that out very clearly. It says, you believe there's one God. That's great. So does Satan and all the demons. They believe that God exists. They believe and know for sure the historical record of Jesus. And James says, and you know what? And they shudder in fear. God had a plan. Remember this verse that we looked at? Before the world was even in existence, God had a plan to fix our sin problem. Before He created the universe, before He even created mankind. Now let that sink in. Talk about God knowing what was going to happen when He created the world, when He created mankind, and He knew that this was all going to take place, that the world would be broken by sin, that He was going to have to sacrifice His own Son to fix it. He knew all of that. Let that sink in. He did it anyway. He did it anyway. That demonstrates the incredible love of God for us. Jesus was the plan all along, the perfect sinless sacrifice to appease God's wrath against sin. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And His resurrection proves that His sacrifice on the cross was enough, that it was sufficient to appease God's wrath. He proved His victory over sin. He proved His victory over 
death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. That means that Jesus has the power to breathe life into both. And we take the understanding of the gospel, and then we ask the question, okay, well then, how do I move, how do you move from spiritual death to spiritual life? How do you and I move from an enemy of God to an adopted child of God that He loves? How do we move from this lost sinner to become this rescued recipient of God's grace and guaranteed eternal life? That happens through belief. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is by God's grace through faith. It's this word believe through faith. Believe what? Well, all of it. It's the belief of all of it is true. My condition of sin, your condition of sin, and what that really means for us with a holy God. Believing that the only way to be made right with God is through this repentant trust in Jesus Christ as our forgiver, the one who can give us spiritual life, the one who can, who can make our heart brand new and give us eternal life and transform us. A genuine believer accepts God's gift, God's free gift of grace through faith. And the key I don't want you to miss in all of that as we think about the gospel, and maybe that's not new for a lot of you. Like, yeah, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. But what I want to really drill down on is this. God did everything. As we think about this idea of chosen and we try to unravel the tension of that, we have to accept the reality that God did everything. God the Father is the one who initiated and designed the plan of salvation. You didn't design the plan of salvation. God did. You didn't initiate it. God did. You didn't fulfill the plan of salvation. Jesus did. Jesus went to the cross, sacrificed His sinless life for you, for me. He, he fulfilled the plan of salvation. You and I didn't do that. The Holy Spirit then uses the gospel message revealed to us in the Word of God, written by who? Yes, there are human authors, but we know that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. And it reveals to us the gospel message. It reveals to us our need of salvation. So it's the Holy Spirit who generates that faith and, and convinces us that we need to be saved from sin and from hell. Let's see if this makes sense. Imagine that you and I, we go out into the parking lot and where I'm standing, I can see a tree out there. And let's say we're standing in the parking lot together and we walk over and like, look at this tree, it is amazing. What a beautiful tree. And the, you know, the blossoms on it, this is incredible. You know what? You know what I learned from observing this tree? I learned that I am uh, completely sinful and separated from God for all of eternity. And uh, that's a real problem that I can't fix on my own. Good thing Jesus, who I've never heard of, good thing Jesus came and paid that sin debt for me. I need to trust in Him and Him alone to make me right with God. I got all of that from the tree and its leaves and its blossoms. That's ridiculous. We don't figure that out by walking around and observing these things. 
We have to hear the gospel message, which was given to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts our hearts that this is true, that it's all true. It's the Holy Spirit that generates that faith. We don't figure it out on our own. So to say that, you know, if we step back and we look at our salvation moment, right, that moment where we prayed and we, uh, we repented of our sin and we trusted Christ as our Savior, that's an important moment for sure. But if you step back from that moment and you see the bigger picture, what you see is that God did everything. So to say that God chooses or to say that the believer is chosen by God Somehow in the sovereignty of God, he does not void out our free will. And yet, we can't walk away saying anything other than praise God for what he did in my life. Praise God for his gift of grace. He did it all. We take our understanding of the gospel. We take our understanding of this this word chosen now. And we go back to verse And we can now, I believe, ask the question, well, how do I know that I'm chosen? Verse 4 says, we know, dear brother and sister, dear believer, that God loves you and that God has chosen you to be his own people. How do you know? We didn't get a jersey in the mail. We didn't go to the mall and buy a hat. It's not something that we earned at boot camp. It's not something we earned through college credit. We don't, when we pray that that prayer of salvation, we don't sprout wings. We don't somehow uh, have this halo that appears on the top of our head. How do we know it's real? How do we know that God did something in our soul? I can't see your soul. You can't see my soul. We can't physically verify with a blood test, with a CAT scan, with an MRI, something that spiritually happened in us. When my brother was adopted, uh, we got our brother uh, when he was just a baby. And he was a foster child that then the opportunity came to adopt him. And it was just a God thing. When he was about, I think, 9, 10, somewhere in that range, he had some heart problems that uh, we had to take him to a cardiologist, and they were doing these uh, tests. Uh, I don't know what specific tests, but I know uh, that, you know, the screen, you can see the screen, and you can see the heart and the chambers and all of this. And I can remember sitting there and listening to what the doctor is saying and, and, and we're walking through all of that, and my brother looks at the screen, young kid, and he says, you see Jesus in there? Now, he was totally sincere. He had asked Jesus into his heart. Remember that phrase? And so he genuinely was wondering, is Jesus, that's my heart, is, where, is, where is Jesus? He wasn't in the picture, by the way. Jesus was, he wasn't in there. That's not how it works, right? That's not how, that's not how it actually works. Fine phrase, I understand what it means, but it's, it's spiritual. It's not something that we can know by looking at a, at a test. I think this is what Paul is about to show us in these verses. Would you go back and look at this? We know, verse 4, we know that God loves you. 
We know God has chosen you to be his own people. All right, so where's the evidence? Verse 5, for when we brought you the good news. What's the good news? The gospel of Jesus Christ that we just spent 15 minutes talking about. When we brought you the good news of Jesus, it was not only with words. It wasn't just some guys showing up in your city and and rattling off some words from human wisdom that convinced you of all of this. What was it? Well, it was also with power. Well, whose power? The Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. It was the Holy Spirit who convinced you that what we told you about Jesus is true. Gospel came with power. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for someone to say to me after a sermon, to say, Pastor, I just want you to know, I thank you for the sermon, and I want you to know that that sermon was for me. And I don't, I don't, I, I know there's other people in the room, but that was, that was just that was just for me. And I understand what they mean by that, but I assure you, I am not hiding in the bushes of your house. And I'm, I'm not behind the copier where you work. None of that. I don't, I don't, I'm not following you around. I've got better things to do than that. I also want you to know that when I sit down and, and work on a sermon, uh, I, am, I am not writing to any one particular person. I don't think that's right. I, I, I don't think it's helpful. I will say this, when I sit down and, and I'm studying for a sermon, I do try to think about categories of people, like the students that we have in the room, and uh, what are they experiencing in life right now? I try to ask questions like that, like how would they relate to this? And those of you who, who've been through life a lot longer and how, are, uh, how can this apply to those who maybe who are seniors or those who are parents, those who are married? So in categories, yes. I even try really hard every week to think about how would a person who doesn't know Jesus yet, how, why would they care about this? Why would this matter to them? How are they going to hear what I'm saying? So yeah, I, I try to answer those kinds of questions whenever I'm working on a sermon. But you need to know that if you, if you personally feel conviction, if you personally feel uh, some type of inspiration towards some heart-level change, some desire to change a behavior, some desire to change the, the way that you think about something, you need to know that that comes from God. That comes from the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Mark doesn't save anyone. Mark doesn't change anyone's life. That's happening in your life, and it happens on the other side of a sermon. You know who we praise? We praise God, because He's the one at work in your heart. It's the power of God. And Paul says, when the power of the Holy Spirit convinces you that the gospel is true, that you need to change, then you can know that God has chosen to do that in your life. The very fact that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is in itself evidence that you are saved, that you are chosen. Because you didn't figure it out on your own. God did that in your heart through the Spirit. Verse 6. 
Some more evidence. So, you received the message. What message? The message of the gospel of Jesus. You received it with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. And in this way, you imitated both us, right? Paul and his ministry team, they, uh, they went through suffering. They had to leave that city and then the next city. And you imitated Jesus. Jesus suffered as well. Talks here about change, and we'll get to change in just a moment. But he says, you changed in the sense that you became imitators of Jesus, and that, that change in your life brought about suffering. He uses the word severe suffering. It cost you something to live like Jesus. It cost you something. And you did it anyway, and you did it with joy. He says, this is evidence that God is at work in your life, that you are chosen, that you are saved. Let me put this into uh, just a real-life context, because I think as an American culture, we are getting closer and closer to a reality that the, uh, the believers in Thessalonica experience. We're not there yet, but boy, we're moving in that direction as a culture. Here's what they experienced. We talk about severe suffering. You read it, and it's on a page, and you're like, eh, what, whatever that means. For the believer in Thessalonica, they lived at a time... When every major city, Thessalonica, Ephesus, all these major cities, they would have a central market. Imagine a mall. Remember malls? Remember we used to have malls that people would go to? So imagine a mall uh, being this, this huge place where there are businesses. And, uh, you know, my generation, the, the mall was also this place of social interaction, right? You just go around and we would walk around the mall. We thought we were so cool to walk around the mall. And you would, you would buy things there, and there would be this interaction. So imagine the central market. There is this place there where all the business in the community takes place. You buy things. You sell things. You have your business there. It is also the center of social life. It is the center of social networking in the community. And in order to get into the central market, they would have gates, and at every one of those gates... There would be a pot that would have a little bit of incense that you would take just a pinch of incense, and there would be another pot there that would have a fire in it. Take a pinch of incense, and you would put it into the fire to get into the central market. And what you were saying when you took the incense and put it in the fire, you were, you were honoring the emperor. You were declaring that you believe that the emperor is God. That's what it meant. What is a Christian supposed to do with that? They've been doing it for years. They've been doing it their whole lives. A little bit of incense, put in the thing, go in, we're all cool with everyone. Well, as a Christian, they don't. We don't believe that the emperor is God. So what do we do? If we don't put the incense in the pot, then we're not going to be looked at with good favor among the people in the market. Well, what's that going to mean for us? Well, it could mean that they would boycott your business. It could mean that they won't sell things to you. It could mean that you will be marginalized and pushed out of the community on the social level. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. These were the real choices that they had to make. And for some of them, it was even worse. We find out in this letter is that for the, the folks in Thessalonica, they lived in a city where emperor worship was taken really seriously. Not every city was like this, some were a little bit more laxed in it, but in some cities, if you didn't do this, if you didn't, 
recognize the emperor as God and you didn't worship him in this way, they would arrest you. They would beat you, sometimes even kill you. And that's what they experienced. There was cultural celebrations, parties, and parades that would take place every year. Right? We have the Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? We know what that is. There's the 4th of July. Maybe there's a celebration around that. So we, we understand some of these things in our modern day. But the cultural parades and celebrations at, at that time were all centered around pagan worship. And the way that they partied was to, uh, they would have, imagine, imagine Mardi Gras and spring break in Miami combined. That's the moral uh, in fact, no, don't think about it. That's terrible. Let's not think about that. Get that out of your mind. Let's not spend one more second there. You get the idea uh, that that's what this was about. What's a Christian supposed to do with that? They've been going to these things their whole life. And now when, when uh, the neighbor says, hey, we're going down to the, the party, going down to the parade, you come along? No. Why? We go every year. Are they going to risk giving up their friendships? Are they going to risk being pushed out of polite society? Are they going to risk being looked at as weird or, or being labeled as a hater or a bigot or some other terrible label? This change in their lives cost them something, and it was evidence that they were saved. It was evidence that they were chosen because they accepted that with joy. And that joy came from the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, look at this, verse 7. As a result, you have become an example to all believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you. You might have the, the phrase... Uh, something to do with trumpets, like this herald of a trumpet, ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. That's incredible. We don't need to tell them about it. They're telling us. They keep talking to us about how the, the wonderful welcome you gave us and, and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God and it costs you something? And they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who's rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. The believers in Thessalonica, they were not shy about their faith. They were bold and courageous in their faith. Their lives changed, and everybody knew it. And it cost them something. But, they inspired Christians. Their example, their testimony inspired Christians in other cities to live a Jesus-centered life, to be a Jesus-centered church. Paul says to them, this, this is all evidence that you're chosen by God, that you're truly saved, because these are the kind of things that you see in a person who's been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't earn their salvation by dumping their idols and foregoing the, the terrible parade. No, they were saved by God's grace, but all of these things, these, these changes in their lives, 
It was evidence that God really had saved them and chosen them. It's changing them. So let's take that word, chosen. Let's bring it back to you and to me. How do you know? How do you know for sure? That's the, the big challenge, I think, this week is to honestly ask that question. How do I, how do you really know that God has chosen you, that you are truly saved? Well, let's start with the basic. Do you believe the gospel is true? Do you really? I don't mean historically. I don't mean do you, do you agree with all of the, the, the check boxes? Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem, and this is what he did, and he died. I don't mean just do you believe the historical record. Do you believe all of it, that you are separated from God because of your sin and need Jesus to rescue? Do you believe all of it? If you believe the gospel is true for you, you didn't figure that out on your own. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you and convinced you that it's true. Yes, there is an element of your free will choice to accept that, but God did that in your life. It's evidence that you're chosen. It's evidence that you're saved, that you believe it. Here's the other thing that I think we can look at. Is your life different? Think about someone who is dead and then someone who is alive, very, very different. They don't, they, there's no characteristics that really match up between those two conditions. Is your life different? Now, notice, I'm not saying perfect. I'm saying different. Is there change happening in your life? Is there even a desire for change in your heart? Because if there's no desire for change in your heart, if you're like, eh, I'm good. I've got my own way of doing things. I've got my own way of thinking about life, and I'm good. If that's your attitude, if that's the way you're sailing through life, no desire for change, there is a problem in your heart. Can people see that you're different? I'll tell you what, in this American culture that is getting more and more corrupt and, and more and more morally bankrupt, it is not going to be hard to tell if you are different from the culture we live in. And people tell a difference in you. And if you are living a Jesus-centered life and people can see a difference in you, is that causing any discomfort in your life? In other words, are you, are you being rejected, pushed to the margin, not getting invited to things? Is that happening? And if so, what's your response to that? Like, I don't like this at all. I'm going to do whatever it takes to compromise and tone this Jesus stuff down a little bit so that I can still get invited to the party. Or, or, or are you like the, the Thessalonian believers where there's joy in your heart that the Holy Spirit's putting there whenever these things happen, when you're rejected and you're persecuted and you're made fun of. This is evidence that the Holy Spirit is work in your life. This is how you can know for sure. Let me, let me ask this of you. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes? We'll take two more minutes together. I, 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 just, I want a, as much concentration on this question as you possibly can have. What if you don't know? What if you're, you're sitting here and if you know for sure, you're like, yes, I know for sure then praise God, because you didn't figure that out. You praise God, 
And right now, you take a moment to thank God for what he did in your heart, what God did in your life, what Jesus did for you on the cross. You take a minute now and just give him glory. If you're sitting here, you're like, I don't really know for sure. And it could be anyone, right? You, you could have gone to church your whole life. Maybe this is your first time in a setting like this. Maybe this is your first time listening to a sermon online. But it's possible you've gone to church your whole life. And, and maybe, maybe you're even a good person. You might be a rotten little rip, but maybe you're a really good person. You might have been doing some religious stuff like the people who came to Jesus. They thought they were saved. They thought they were on the team. But Jesus said, no, it's been a show. It's been surface level. Your heart never changed. I never knew you. If you don't know for sure, then now's your opportunity to pray and ask God to move in your heart, to ask God to generate faith in your life, to ask Him to help you believe that that Jesus really did go to the cross and die in your place and pay your sin debt, that ask God to help you believe in the resurrection and to breathe spiritual life into your soul. This is your opportunity to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, change your heart, transform your life, and help you live a life that's centered on Him instead of yourself. Take a moment. If you don't know for sure, then cry out to God and Ask for help. Ask him to generate that faith in your heart.